0: As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I had the intention, and I still have the intention, I'm going to focus a little bit of time on sort of the distinction between covenant theology and various strands of dispensational dispensationalism or dispensational theology. Simply because the covenant terminology that was introduced to us in Genesis chapter nine, the first time that term is utilized. Uh, in the scripture explicitly, and so I thought it would be a good sort of jumping off point for a couple of weeks to talk about that. I know that there's um, a range of confusion and a range of uh, sort of conviction that is uh, common in circles like we operate in, in the in the church uh, in reformed doctrinal circles, and so I think it might just be helpful for us to spend a little bit of time and I certainly don 't want it to be a um, an in-depth study of those subjects because, um, first of all, I don't feel like I'm fully equipped to do that um, from a standpoint of my own personal study and, and um, exposure to all the information. But one of the things that I'm doing that, I, that led me to kind of hold off until next week to get that started is <clears throat> I want to make sure that I've kind of read from a number of different viewpoints. And so if I, I feel like if I started today, then I would my, my exposure to some of the material... Um, that I'm looking at would be too slanted in one direction, if you will, and I haven't had enough um, breadth of of exposure yet to really feel like I can bring the subject matter uh, effectively to you. But also, anytime you want to try to take on big doctrinal issues or big theological matters um, in a a Bible study setting, if you're trying to, to condense that information into a relatively short span of time, um, that's to me, that's a harder task in the, in the context of study and preparation than if you were going to be able to kind of do it over, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks because you're having to kind of try to figure out what is mo- the most salient thing that needs to be said about this particular matter. What should I leave off and what should I include? So that process is taking me a little bit longer to kind of work through as well. So I, I, I appreciate your patience in that. Um, so today we're going to have a little bit of an interlude. And I, 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 this is just kind of based on my own personal conviction and thinking uh, about this time of year Um, and this season of the year that we're entering into as we enter into sort of the Christmas holiday season, this post-Thanksgiving downhill rush into uh, the Christmas celebration. And so I thought I'd kind of take a little bit of a pause to speak a little bit about some things that um, come to mind as I think about this time of year um, that hopefully will be encouraging um, for all of us as well. I want to start by asking this question, and I'll, I'll welcome your feedback of what you think uh, a, a good response to this would be. Uh, the question is this: What do you think is the biggest threat facing our nation today? What do you think is the biggest threat, or threats, if you want to name a few? We're talking political now, not spiritual, right? I didn't qualify it. Uh, no, you didn't. Sky's the limit. A little bit of a trick question, I'll admit. I have an angle. I'm working here. What do you guys think? What are some What are some major threats that are facing our nation today? Secularism. Secularism. Okay. I think in the post-Christian era, we put our trust in government or Okay. <laughs> so, sort of worldliness in our mindset and and, and temporal sort of focus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so far, you've really got the, the spiritual category answers when you, get, when you take it down to the bottom line. Yeah. From a political standpoint, I think terrorism is far more of a threat than people acknowledge. I, it's on my list. I have terrorism, or ISIS is kind of the, you know, the latest uh, sort of organizational, terroristic threat, if you want to call it that. But here again, it depends on what God. Enough. I think the influence of social media has a big influence. Okay. On culture and on people's thinking, and yeah. Each other. yeah. Anyone else? So I, I, have, I made a list of what I think are common um, threats, if you want to call it that, uh, that people would come up with that I think would be, it would sort of cover a range of perspectives. But I, I had ISIS or terrorism as a threat that people would say that's a big threat to our, our nation um some people might be more specific in in naming a nation like the nuclear a nuclear Iran or a nuclear North Korea for example big political um, geopolitical discussions that go on around those two nations and uh, the threat that they might pose to uh, our country as well as others uh, global warming or climate change is often in that discussion is a, a threat Interestingly, interestingly enough, it's, it's actually cast in the context of a threat that's either compared to or even greater than things like actual terrorism and <laughs> harm, to our, harm to our physical uh, well-being. But nonetheless, it's, it's on people's minds, and it's, it's in the discussion if you th- want to think about just our nation and things facing our nation that are threatening. Um, a weak economy, so there's economic thoughts and concerns, uh, or, or national debt you know, that's big, big thoughts around that, or the devaluing of our currency, you get into sort of these economic concerns, if that's kind of your focus or your perspective. Um, Some people might say a weak education system, so they would be thinking about, you know, what's happening to the future generations, and how are we educating the future generations, and what kind of worldview will future generations carry into their adult life as they lead our country, and so The extent to which we are not doing a good job in the educational systems of our country, um, that poses an enormous threat, people might say. Um, Some people might argue that the rise in gun violence is a big threat. Um, Some people might say Donald Trump is the greatest threat to our nation at this point. I mean, I think that's that's actually what people are saying. I mean that's literally what people are saying. That uh, the president-elect is the greatest threat to our nation now. So, Pe- I said people. No, I didn't say the people. 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 Yeah. Pe- many people, actually. I mean, many, many people, not as a percentage of the total population, but but a lot of people. Are, I mean, in other words, to me, I put that in the same category as you know, global warming is the greatest threat to our nation. I mean, you know, one person. Uh, it just it's it's interesting how people's minds kind of get captivated by uh, and stirred up by things that they feel like are a threat, and even can become rather irrational uh, in their conclusions. But I would say, and this is this is the trick part of the question, because obviously I've got an angle here. But I would argue that the biggest threat facing our nation, and really facing any nation, um, or a big threat facing our nation is this pervasive lack of true wisdom demonstrated by leaders and citizens alike. Just a lack of wisdom, true wisdom. Because if you think about everything else that we could talk about in terms of threats, if you don't have wisdom, if you're not thinking wisely and making decisions based on true wisdom, then it's going to lead to all kinds of wrong conclusions about education or geopolitical threats or economic concerns or whatever. When you talk about wisdom, are you talking about common sense reasoning or are you talking about education and what, you, what you've been taught? I would say I'm talking about biblical wisdom. I'm talking about wisdom, the wisdom of God. Right, and that's part of the problem. They don't read the Bible. That's right. That's right. And so, when you think about the implications of the lack of wisdom, you're talking about the lack of biblical understanding, the lack of biblical study, the lack of biblical exposure, or whatever you, however you want to characterize it. But yeah, I'm talk, I'm, I'm speaking more specifically, obviously, about true wisdom, the wisdom of God, which is found most explicitly for our for our understanding in the words of Scripture, pages of Scripture. Now, if you go to the Internet, which is the source of all wisdom as well, I mean, if we're talking about sources, you know, Google, just pick your your search engine. But you can find wise sayings there, too. So if you want to kind of get a general survey of, of wise sayings that you can maybe adopt as your mantra for the week, I have a list for you. So this is just for your general enjoyment and consumption here. Let's just call this wise sayings from the internet. The problem with America is stupidity. I'm not saying there should be a capital punishment for stupidity, but why don't we just take the safety labels off of everything and let the problem solve itself? That's wisdom, huh? Or how about this? Change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. Boom, boom, Uh, never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups. I notice you're not telling us who said this. Uh, no, I don't, have, I don't have the authors. Oh. No references here. Uh, this is probably one that you've heard of you know, and maybe even thought of yourself. People who think they know what they're doing are especially annoying to those of us who do. Ever thought that? <laughs> or an expert is one who knows more and more about less and less until he knows absolutely everything about nothing. You heard that one? Um, This is probably timely for this particular season of the year. Whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. That's not you, is it? All right, how about this one? Um, People who say it can't be done should not interrupt those of us who are doing it. Ooh. All right. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this. In fact, I think I heard this reference in my own home recently. Anybody going slower than you is an idiot, and anyone going faster than you is a maniac. You ever thought about that on the freeway? And then here's, here's the last one. This is, this is a special, you know, sentimental Christmas wish for you to take home. Always remember you're unique, just like everyone else. Think about it. That's what you get when you go to the Internet and look for wise sayings. And as I thought about Christmas, this Christmas season, uh, actually, I was thinking about this this morning, in fact, there's this tension that we feel at this time of year, I think, and it's a tension that is is, is kind of this this place where we're wanting to savor and and cherish all the delights and uh, accoutrements of this time of year. We're wanting to think um, appropriately and spiritually and biblically about what we're celebrating this time of year. We're wanting to enjoy uh, the fellowship that kind of coincides this time of year. We're wanting to enjoy the sights and the sounds and the music and the decorations and all that. We're wanting to savor all that and enjoy all of that. But there's a tension between trying to do that and confronting the harsh realities of jam-packed schedules this time of year and crowded stores and backed up roadways with traffic and tense people, people who are on edge everywhere. You go into a store and all you're doing is asking a question, can you can you point to me where the the almond milk is and you know, you kind of get a look like, you know, I mean that kind of stuff happens more and more this time of year because people are just tense and on edge. And so you have this collision this time of year that I think all of us to one degree or another experience and and that is that we we want to have a good Christmas season. We want to enjoy all the neat things about this time of year, and yet the reality is that all the things that go along with this time of year also include things that are inconvenient, potentially hurtful, um, tense, tension building, anxiety producing. um, That all kind of condenses at this time of year as well. And I couldn't help but think of um, the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, Verses fifteen to sixteen that says, "Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil." The fact of the matter is, is that just because we we hang Christmas lights and put up trees and and you know and sing Christmas carols and think about gift buying and gift giving and all those things that kind of coincide with this time of year, and even as we make plans for various. Um, Christmas celebrations that would be appropriate to the season in terms of celebrating the birth of Christ and our salvation that was purchased through Christ and the coming of our King and all the things that that would be a biblical uh, um, reference point for this time of year. Even in the context of, of those types of thoughts and those types of plans and even engaging in those types of activities, the days are still evil. That's the reality. The days are still evil. And the caution that we are living with day by day as believers is to look carefully how you walk because the days are evil. Make the use of your time. Make the most of your time. Make the best use of time because the days are evil. This, this verse, this, these couple of verses, sort of come at the end of this section of chapter 5 in Ephesians that begins by calling us to be imitators of God, to walk in love as Christ loved us and to be imitators of the God who saved us through Christ. And it goes on to give indications of that walk, examples of that walk. In verse 3 of chapter 5, not even a hint of moral impurity or, or covetousness should be named among you. Verse 4 of chapter 5, there should be a complete absence of filthy or foolish talk or crude joking. Rather, our, our, our speech should be uh, comprised of primarily thanksgiving. So there's an indication there both the moral, moral conduct, the mindset that we have, the speech that we, that we say, the things that we say, the words that we speak. Um, chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, talks about us not being deceived with empty words, and then it calls us to be discerning. So this wise walk is characterized by moral conduct. It's characterized by an attitude that's not drawn, uh, driven by desiring what we don't have or being envious of other people. It affects our speech and the things that we say. It uh, is a call for us to be discerning and to not be easily deceived or duped by other people's empty words. And then it even calls us in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 11 and 14, to expose folly, to like bring to light, bring the light of the truth to foolish things. So we even have not, not just a defensive Um, responsibility to not be deceived and and to be discerning and to kind of test things. But we're also supposed to bring the truth, the light of the truth, to bear on foolish things and expose it for what it is. And then you get down to this passage that I just referenced, verses 15 to 16 of Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, that's just sort of an introductory um, passage, but focusing on a passage in James that deals with wisdom. It's James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. And I like the way this passage starts because it says, it asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? So James is sort of putting out a question to the reader. So, so who is this wise person? Look around you and and tell me, what does this wise person look like? Who is wise and understanding among you? And then he goes on from there to provide some content to describe both the unwise and the wise. And of course, that's the nature of the book of James, is this book of contrasts and really making its point through contrast. And so it starts off by saying, who is wise and understanding among you? by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom so right there we get an indication that wisdom is going to be directly connected to conduct and works that that takes that takes wisdom out of this ethereal mystical sort of super duper you know superhero spiritual realm and puts it right into the realm of daily walk in life. Just like the Ephesians passage speaks of, of our moral conduct and our speech. Um, the actual living and doing of life. James does the same thing because he starts off by d- just saying, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And he goes on in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. by those who make peace. So, again, James, this book that's just so practical in its, in its content, gives for us a very clear picture of, in, a very, in the form of contrast between true wisdom and earthly wisdom, or false wisdom. And I think it's important for us to note, and I think that the, that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians implies this, that there is wisdom of this world. There, there is, a, there is a, a wisdom, if you will, it would be characterized as wise or knowledgeable, that is not truly wise and knowledgeable. There is, there is a wisdom that could be deceptive for us. There are pursuits of certain types of conduct and belief and behavior and thinking that might, in the context of the world, seem wise or appear wise, but in fact... They're not, and James is making this point very plainly here as well. When we think of wisdom, wisdom is is really, there's a number of different definitions that you might find about wisdom, but as you look in the pages of Scripture, as you focus, for example, in the book of Proverbs, is one one area where wisdom is dealt with extensively. You basically see wisdom as as essentially skillfully applying knowledge to the matter of practical living. So, So wisdom is living your life in such a way that is a, a, a prudent application of knowledge, the knowledge that you have. And in, in truth, in our context, it's the application of truth knowledge, of biblical knowledge, of God's wisdom. It's, it's, it's living life in such a way. It's skillfully living life, basically, according to the principles of Scripture. That's Wisdom. I think it's important to make the distinction again that when you think about living wisely or being careful how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, and you, and you try to think about what wisdom actually is, it is not a ethereal, mystical thing that you have to achieve in some strange way. Or it's not something that is only reserved for the aged. Wisdom is the skillful application of knowledge to the practical daily affairs of life. That's wisdom. And so here, you have the term wisdom, you also have the term understanding used. And this word for understanding that's used, is it's used only here in the New Testament. And it means a specialist or a professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to practical situations. It's it's a word that refers to someone who is skillful. And I, I love that. I think that that makes this so intensely practical. It takes this idea of wisdom out of the realm of something that is outside of the average person's reach, which oftentimes is the case when you think about worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is oftentimes ascribed to only a select few who have a certain secret kind of knowledge. You would even find this pervasive in various forums of debate where you're debating you know, various issues, social issues or political issues, where the person who doesn't have a particular um, degree or set of degrees or particular um, uh, experience of training in a, in a specific area, they're not qualified to speak on a matter at all. They're completely disqualified. They haven't they haven't lived the right life. They haven't, they haven't attained the right kind of experience. They haven't achieved the right kind of educational degree. They, they don't have that special knowledge. And so their words, their commentary on a matter, their opinions about a particular issue are discounted or at least diminished or minimized because they don't have a special knowledge. Well, that's not characteristic of true wisdom aside from the fact that it's, it's the knowledge of, of Scripture and the knowledge of God, but... It's, it's available to all who would seek for it and ask for it according to God's provision. In other words, it's not something that is held back or held secret or reserved just for a select few spiritual elite. It's very practical in nature. It's also tied to this character quality of meekness, which is just the opposite of arrogance and self-promotion. Meekness, another term for it, is power under control. So when you think of someone who lives wisely and they're characterized by a meekness, it's not that they are weak. I'm sure you've heard that before, that meekness is not the same as weakness. In fact, it's power that's under control. And again, I refer back to this this idea of someone who has understanding as someone who's a specialist. They're highly skilled, but they're not arrogant. And they're not self-promoting in their skill. Word for is humility. humility. They're humble people. Don't like to use that word. <laughs> well, it, it, and you think about it. I mean, we talked about this many times before, but that is one of the essential characteristics of a person who is a true believer, is someone who is humble. You can't even come to Christ before you humble yourself, right? So this characteristic of humility. So again, Taking taking this this wisdom concept out of the realm of secret special knowledge, and also taking it out of the realm of something that attributes you know grandeur or mystique to yourself, and putting it in the realm of being skillful at living life practically, but doing it in, in humility, and not in self promotion. That's that's the profile. That's the picture of someone who is paying attention how they're living, who is making the most of every opportunity, who is living in wisdom. So he asked this question, James asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? And, and he, and he categorizes, categorizes this wisdom that's going to manifest itself in, in conduct and works. But then he goes to, and begins to, to break down this worldly wisdom. He, he says, if you have jealousy... Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, spiritual, demonic. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts? If so, then we should not deceive ourselves by thinking that we can live wisely when that is present. Do not boast and be false to the truth, he says. Bitter jealousy, this word bitter is a word used to describe water that is undrinkable. So you combine this bitterness with jealousy, and it's this harsh resentment toward others. So if your life is characterized by bitter jealousy, and this is where I I, I love this passage, it gets right to the heart of the matter for us to test our own wisdom barometer. If you have bitter jealousy, if you have harsh resentment toward others, resentment against a rival or resentment of a person who's enjoying success or advantage. A mental uneasiness from suspicion or fear of rivalry. So if you have these things present in your heart, if you're resenting other people because you think that they have something that you don't have, if you're consistently measuring the quality of your life against what you deem to be the quality of another person's life and you're allowing that measurement to generate in you a resentment of what someone else has. That's unwise. That's very unwise. That is not characteristic of wisdom. He also uses this term selfish ambition. So if you're characterized by a self-seeking motivation that divides people and creates factions amongst people, you're not wise. If you think of the... the. TV show that's been on for like a thousand years now, Survivor. Survivor, where someone, where a group of people get sort of dropped in some remote, you know, island or some place, some harsh environment, and the objective is for them to kind of be the last man or woman standing on the island. And you know, the the I never forget. I watched the first season that that came out. I think I watched the first season. I don't know if we ever watched another episode, another season after that, which is. I don't, I don't know what happened so long ago. But, but the, whole, the whole nature of that show centers around creating alliances and actually dividing people, creating factions. It's completely driven by selfish ambition. So if you think about your life and you think about the way that you live your life, and if your life is characterized by anything remote, remotely resembling a self-seeking motivation that looks to divide people or to create alliances with people, so that you can be sort of favored in some social setting. That's not wise. And then he gives this caution, this substantial caution. He says that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So, When you think about these characteristics, this characteristic of bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, which is very easy to crop up in our hearts and our minds. It is very easy for us to become resentful of other people, to become jealous of what other people have. It is very easy for us to be motivated by self-interest, like driven by self-interest and self-promotion, even to the extent that we allow it to create divisions amongst people. Those kinds of things are very common amongst even professing believers. And yet, James characterizes this not just as a bad idea, but he characterizes this as wisdom that's not from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. That's how... Stark the characterization is. It's limited in its scope and its ability to produce skillful living. It's fleshly and self centered, and it's deceptive. And when we think about wisdom and living wisely, you know, what we're often looking for is Dear God, give me wisdom because I have a big decision to make about this or that. Dear God, I need wisdom because I need to know what to do about this relational conflict. Lord, I need wisdom for this or that. And we're thinking in terms of what we need is we need some quick answer. We need some quick solution. We need some quick sort of roadmap. God, if you could just sort of give me at least a, a, a sign that says, just go this way for a while. You know, I, that, what is your will in this particular matter? And oftentimes we're, we're thinking of wisdom in those kinds of ways where we're looking for little nuggets of wisdom to help us solve a problem or fix a particular dilemma in a relationship or give us guidance to go in a certain direction. Should I, should I move here and take this job or should I stay here and you know whatever? I mean, we're thinking about that. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do in and of itself. But to think that of wisdom just in those terms, you can s- subtly slide into a mindset about what it means to walk wisely that is really earthly. It's it's fleshy. It's temporal. So if at the same time that we are asking for wisdom about some particular decision, we are also harboring bitterness and jealousy and resentment toward others. Major clash there. Major conflict. So he gives us this strong caution to make sure we understand that before we become too preoccupied with needing some answer for some particular dilemma in our lives that we want God's wisdom for, let's check our hearts for basic things like bitterness, resentment, jealousy, or just self selfish ambition. Are we are we too consumed with achieving the next goal or you know getting the next promotion or whatever it might be? If those things are present, that is not going to be characteristic of a person who's walking in wisdom. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now think of that. Is your life characterized by order or disorder? Another another way to think about this is, is your life generally characterized by a lack of peace, both internal peace and external peace? Peace within and peace amongst your brethren, those you work with, colleagues, people in your community. If there's disorder or the absence of peace, or if there's confusion, constant confusion, confusion about where people stand with you and, and confusion about what the next step should be, and there, it just, there's just this, this characteristic of confusion or instability would be another uh, term to think about. A lack of peace, confusion, instability. If that's characteristic of your life or your world, there's a lack of wisdom there. Because where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. And then he goes on to say, disorder and every vile practice. Uh, literally translated, this could be every useless work. Just, just this wasting of time rather than redeeming time like Ephesians talks about an excessive focus on things that just don't really matter. Now, how often have you and I been guilty of just that? How easy is it for us to get preoccupied with things that really don't matter? Like, literally preoccupied. We could. How many hours of a day can we waste on things that just don't matter? I don't even want to talk too long about that because the guilt and conviction will probably drop me to the ground. But that's what every vile practice really is referring to. Not redeeming time, but wasting time, an excessive focus on things that don't matter, and just generally misplaced priorities. So, these, these character qualities of a lack of wisdom, or put it in the terms that James puts it, this earthly wisdom, this wisdom that's fleshly or demonic, This bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, it has fruit, and the fruit is disorder and every vile practice. So, if you're wondering, if you're walking in wisdom, there's some good questions that we could ask ourselves about our hearts. And is there resentment and jealousy there? Are we overly focused on our own goals and our own objectives? And so, therefore, if we were really honest, we're we're sort of plagued right now with selfish ambition. And if we look around and we see the fruit of our lives right now, are we seeing disorder? Are we seeing a lack of peace? Are we seeing confusion? Are we seeing just general instability? Are we finding ourselves either surrounding ourselves with people who waste time or are we contributors to wasting time or are we redeeming time? You know, are we constantly focused on things that don't matter? Are our priorities just perpetually kind of out of alignment? That's a good indication that you're not walking in wisdom. But he doesn't leave us hanging there. He goes on to talk about characteristics of wisdom, this wisdom that's from above, as he says in verse 17. And he just gives these, these very short sort of staccato kinds of descriptive terms of what wisdom from above looks like. And he says, first of all, it's pure. Wisdom from above is pure. Or it's clear. It's uncluttered. It's sincere. It's genuine. There's no pretense. There's no muddled thinking. There's no confusion. And just remember, the characteristic of the earthly wisdom is confusion or disorder. Well... This is pure, this is clear, this is uncluttered. It's peaceable, or peace-loving, or peace-promoting. It's the character of a peacemaker, someone who's oriented toward promoting peace and loving peace. Doing whatever you can, as much as it depends upon you, the Apostle Paul would tell us, to be at peace with all men. That's wise. Wisdom is characterized by gentleness, Wisdom is gentle, it's kind, it's not vengeful. Is your life and in your heart and your speech and your conduct generally characterized by kindness? Just basic kindness. Remember, as I talked about this time of year, what oftentimes happens is the tension of schedules and the demands of time And the crowded marketplace and the crowded highways and all the things that go along with this season of the year as we tend to experience it here can easily lead to a lack of just general kindness. And James would tell us that's just not wise. It's just not wise. He doesn't say, you know, if there's a lot of traffic, then, you know, maybe you get a break. He just says it's just not wise to be characterized by a lack of kindness. Or another way to put it is wisdom from above is going to be characterized by a general kindness. It's not vengeful. Now, I love this. It's open to reason. Wisdom is open to reason, meaning it's teachable. A wise person is teachable. Again, going back to the contrast between earthly wisdom, most often when you get into the realm of experts in the world, One of the things you'll find is that they are closed off to debate or counterpoints of view. They see counterpoints of view as just someone to knock down a few notches with their arguments and their degrees and their expertise. Worldly wisdom is not open to learning and growing anymore. But a wise person is a teachable person. That's why I love this this characterization in James, because it's not saying a wise person is someone who's arrived. You're You're not wise just because you've reached some pinnacle of experience, and so there's nothing else for you to learn. No, a wise person is always teachable. They're always open to reason. A wise person or wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits, James says. It's full of mercy and good fruits. The gift of showing concern for those who suffer pain and hardship and the ability to forgive quickly, is what one commentator said. Full of mercy and good fruits, the gift of showing concern for those who suffer and suffer pain and hardship and the ability to forgive quickly. That's, that's a characteristic of wisdom that's from above. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's also impartial or consistent. It's unwavering. and It does not make unfair distinctions. So wisdom from above is impartial in nature. I like that term or that description. It does not make unfair distinctions. It's careful about drawing lines. Making unfair, unreasonable, or quick distinctions between good and bad, right and wrong, Someone's opinion being a good opinion or a bad opinion. Doesn't do that in unfair or quick or rash ways. And wisdom from above is sincere. No pretense, no manipulation, no hidden agendas. It's just sincere. That's what a wise person looks like. That's what a wise person sounds like. That's how a wise person conducts their lives. And if your general attitude and your general demeanor around other people is just characterized by a basic, comprehensive sincerity. That's walking in wisdom. I love, I love these basic, simple descriptions of walking in wisdom. It does not give for us something that is, like I said, super spiritual and ethereal. It's just basic principles of godly living played out in the day-to-day affairs of life. In the day to day encounters, in the day to day relationships, in our day to day attitudes. So let me just say these again. Wisdom from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's impartial, and it's sincere. That's wisdom. And then he speaks of the blessing of wisdom in verse 18. He says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if wisdom is characterized in general, and if you just think about this and its practical application, if you are living your life in such a way that it is characterized by purity and by gentleness and by being teachable and open to reason and by being full of mercy and good fruits, Showing concern for others who suffer pain or hardship and the ability to forgive quickly when someone has wronged you. If your life is characterized by impartiality, you're not quick to choose sides. You're not quick to form unnecessary alliances. You're impartial in your judgments. And if your life is characterized by sincerity, then the fruit of that is going to be a life of general peace and stability. There could be War and terror going on all around you. There could be turmoil even in your own home. But you can still walk in wisdom, and these still would be the characteristics and manifestations of it for someone who's walking wisely. And so there's this blessing of wisdom. It's a harvest of righteousness, sown in peace by those who make peace. And I couldn't help but think of that passage in First Kings chapter 3, where you, you have that, that recounting of Solomon's dream where God appears to him in a dream and says, ask what you will, and I'll provide it for you. And Solomon does this very clear reason self-assessment. He assesses the blessings that he's been provided. He, he gives an assessment of his own father, David, and his handing this kingdom over to him. He assesses his own inability he, he, he looks at himself and he says, I, I really don't know what I'm about to do. I, I really don't know the, the, the burden that I'm bearing. I really don't know how to take the next step. There was a, there was a humility there, a meekness there. And so he, he makes this request. Of all the things that he could have asked for, he makes this request. He asks essentially for wisdom Help me to rule your people well, help me to rule with good judgment. Is the gist of his request from God. And of course, God grants that request, and then he goes on to say, And because you've asked this, and not for riches or material things, I'm going to give you that as well. And so there's this overwhelming blessing that comes when we seek wisdom. There's not a guarantee that we're going to be made rich because we walk in wisdom, that's not a guarantee. But there certainly is a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. So, as we think about this season of the year and all of the opportunities for rich fellowship with family and friends, and we think about this time of year where we celebrate the birth of our Savior and the joy that that brings to those who have trusted Him for salvation. As we think about this season of the year, and all the things that we have to accomplish, um, end-of-year responsibilities that only come at the end of the year and you just can't help it, but this just, it's just reality of living in the world or working at your job and you have year-end responsibilities that are unique. Jam-packed schedules because people are coming over or you're going to this Christmas party or you've got your staff Christmas party or your office Christmas party putting up decorations, getting the house ready for family to come into town, all the things that bring pressure and strain and stress to this time of year, as well as all the opportunities to cherish this time of year appropriately and the gathering together of both God's people and family and friends. I don't know about you, but I just, I just want to do it with wisdom. I just need to walk wisely. That's what I, that's what I desire. To not get so caught up in what I'm not getting from some sentimental perspective. I've done that before. Where you have notions about what you want this season to be like for you, and a lot of it is tied to sentimentalism. It's tied to some experience of the Christmas season in some special way, and so when those expectations are not met because, guess what? The days are evil. And because I'm there too, bringing my own sinful heart to the situation... Oftentimes I I can react to that and feel discouraged or let down or even frustrated or upset with whoever is messing up my Christmas, messing up this time of year for me. And so I just keep thinking of this need to walk in wisdom, recognizing that that will result in good fruit. And it will be characterized by things that are not only fruitful for me, but are a blessing to others regardless of what's going on around us. And the good news is is that James starts off in James chapter 1 by saying this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So let's ask God for wisdom as we celebrate this coming Christmas season. Let's pray.